As we go to prayer this morning, I want to call your attention to the white roses that are up here again that we uh, put up every time we hear of someone who's come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord for the first time. And recently, Pastor Ken had the opportunity to meet with a couple that had uh, contacted our church. They needed some assistance, and we were able to help them. But how much greater it is to be able to point them to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And what a wonderful opportunity that was as they responded to the gospel and trusted in Christ. And uh, it's just a joy to hear the stories when you have opportunity to share Christ and let us know that. We love to celebrate together and to be reminded of what God is doing. So let's come before the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you that we can be here in your presence. With our brothers and sisters in Christ, we come before your throne of grace because of what Jesus, our Savior and Lord, has done for us, that he has opened the door to come before your throne of grace at any time. We do that with our songs of praise and worship, and these with the words that we sing are really the prayers of our heart, our longing to be near you, to know you better, to walk with you, to see you at work in our life. And Father, I pray that our heart desire would be like that of the psalmist who said, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca, where it is dry and desolate at times. God, you make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools, and they go from strength to strength till each appears before you in Zion. And better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman whose trust is in you. Father, how good that is to be reminded of what the psalmist is sharing. God, we want to see you. We want to worship you. We want to know you better. And we pray today, Father, that you would draw us close to yourself, that you would increase our love for you and for others, that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you so that we might bear fruit in every area of our life. Father, forgive us for our sins and cleanse our hearts so that we can be clean vessels fit for your use and give us the wisdom that we need. Lord, we pray, too, for uh, the ministry of the church here, and I think particularly a vacation Bible school coming up. We pray that you would uh, draw these little children to yourself. We thank you for those that come from the community and from our church, and we pray that it would be a great week for them where they would learn of your love and your mercy, where those that do not know you would come into a relationship with you and bless all of the volunteers and helpers, teachers, leaders. May you use that in a great way as we come together. And Father, thank you too for these white roses that are just symbols of the work that you are doing in people's lives to draw others to your Son as Savior and Lord. And we pray that that would continue many, many times over in the year ahead as we celebrate what you are doing. Thank you today that we can bring to you our gifts and our offering. We do it with gratitude in our hearts for how you have provided for us. 
And I pray for your blessing upon these gifts and upon each one who gives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Haggai chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 10 to 23 uh, this morning as we finish our uh, messages on this short book. From here, we're going to go on to Zechariah and then a little later in the summer to Malachi as we take a look at the last three of the minor prophets in this series. All right. I'd like to read for us uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. And then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied. It becomes defiled. And then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at what you said through Haggai to the people in his generation, would you also speak to us? Help me to explain what this passage is about and to make that clear. And would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts as we think about what you are saying to us? We want to walk with you in obedience. We want to see you at work in our lives and in our church and nation. And God, would you be pleased by your spirit to do that today. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to, to catch a 40-foot wave and ride it to shore? I want you to look at this picture here of a surfer up on the screen. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched surfing on television when it's been on. This is something I've never done, don't really have an interest to do. But when I look at that, you know, I, I'm just amazed. My first thought is these guys who do it are crazy, you know. Why would you, you know, do this? Can you imagine sitting on a, a small board and you're waiting for this wave to come and catch this 40-foot monster wave behind you, and then you decide to stand up on your board and ride it into shore, knowing that the power of this could kill you or at least drive you into the turf. And yet people do it, and they love doing it. And I think, uh, you know, if you were to ask those guys at the end of the day, you know, they probably don't go home and say, boy, that was really boring today. I think I'll go home and watch some television or something like that. No, I guess it's a real adrenaline rush to do that. 
and to ride that kind of monster wave and do it well. Well, when I think about that, I think that life in the Spirit can be like riding a 40-foot wave. And that doesn't mean that the Christian life is always smooth surfing. I mean, there are times when we wipe out or there are times when maybe we feel like we're eating some sand just like these guys have gone through that in their years of practice and training and learning how to surf. But what I do think is true about it is that there are those times when God's Spirit is at work in our life and we can sense that. And maybe it's when we're going through trials and we just feel, feel the prayers of God's people lifting us up and we sense that God is at work. Or maybe it's a time when things are going really well and you've seen answers to prayer or God is blessed and he's opened doors and you are just riding the crest of that way. And everything's come together and it is exciting. The Christian life can be that kind of adventure when we walk with God and the power of his Holy Spirit. I think back in my life, and I, 41 years ago, I made that kind of commitment to Christ of surrender where I got off of this spiritual roller coaster where my life was kind of up and down depending upon my circumstances and how I was feeling. And I learned what it meant to walk in the Spirit each day and to grow in my relationship with him. And from that day on, life has been better. It's been exciting. It has been an adventure. And God has been at work in so many ways. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And that is also what revival is like, only on a larger scale. When God's Spirit blows on a church or begins to move in a nation, there's this wave that comes and it just spreads across the land. I think back in our nation's history, historically, you know, the first great awakening around the time of the revolution and then the second great awakening were powerful movements of God that touched the lives of so many people and swelled the numbers in the church. But I think in recent days there have been movements too in a similar way where in the 70s when our country was going through so much unrest related to the Vietnamese War, Uh, and what was going on there, and the riots in the cities, and the burning of buildings in Chicago and Los Angeles and other areas, God began to move. And there was a movement that took place on the college campuses at that time, and many, many of you came to know Christ or were affected by that. And there was this movement of God that drew people to himself. Or I look at what happened in the 90s with Promise Keepers, and I feel like that was another movement of God that captured the hearts of many men in our country and showed them, again, their responsibility to be faithful men who are involved in their church, who are faithful as husbands, as dads, and it brought people into a new or renewed relationship with Jesus Christ. We're due. We could use that again. A movement of God's Spirit And that is exactly what happened in the time of Haggai when God's people obeyed. A change took place, a change that was significant and that affected everything around them. It was a new beginning that from this day on, things were going to be different. So how did that happen? And what can we learn from their experience? Well, that's what I want to share with you this morning. We see in this passage that revival begins when we turn from sin. The Bible has a word for that. It's called repentance. 
Repentance means to have a change of heart or mind. We see our sin. We see we've been going in a direction away from God. And to repent is to make a U-turn. It's to turn back to God. And to be honest about what's going on in our life. To confess our sin and get right with God. And look at how Haggai made his point in that regard here. He was told by God to ask the priest a theological question about sin and holiness. And so he went to the priest and he said, if a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine or oil or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answered, no. Now you need to understand what's happening here. This is meat that was offered to God as a sacrifice at the altar. And they had an altar. The temple was in ruins, but they had an altar. And that meat would be eaten by the priests or sometimes the offerings were made where it would be eaten by the family. And so here you have the person, you know, carrying this consecrated meat in the fold of his garment. And if he accidentally touched some bread or wine or others, did that become holy too? No, it didn't. Well, what does that mean? And what would that mean for us? Well, it would be things like this. Does... Going to church makes somebody holy. No, not just the act itself of going to church. I mean, just walking in the front doors of our church here doesn't make you holy. It's more than that. There's got to be something that takes place in our heart. How about wearing a cross, you know, as an article of jewelry? Does that make you holy? You know, I mean, we can say sometimes there are entertainers who aren't living very moral lives that are wearing crosses. You know, it's, it's there. Does that make them holy? No. How about a really big cross? You know, well, no, the size of the cross doesn't matter either. That doesn't make you holy. Or how about carrying a Bible? I mean, this is a holy book. This is God's Word. Does carrying a Bible make you holy? No. Same thing. You know, indirect contact doesn't make someone or something holy. What makes a person holy is what happens on the inside in our heart. It requires a change of heart, a turning away from sin and a turning back to God where we are changed on the inside. It is our relationship with Jesus Christ that makes us holy. So a second question, well, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become unclean? The answer was yes. Under the old covenant, if someone touched a person who was deceased, they were unclean for seven days. And then they would need to go to the temple or go to the priest and they would need to wash themselves with this water of cleansing and they would be clean. All of that was laid out in the law in Numbers 19. And Haggai's point is this, in talking about the nature of sin and holiness, it's as though sin is contagious, but holiness is not. It's kind of like catching a cold or a flu. You know, a couple years ago when our youngest son Ben got married, it was in January, and everybody came home, the family was at our house, and unfortunately the grandchildren were sick with the flu, and that kind of made it through and spread to everybody. We uh, had a 
24-hour window, God was gracious when people were well enough uh, to be okay, and that was right over the time of the wedding itself, and then people went back to being sick again, and it was kind of miserable. Well, you know, wouldn't it have been nice if during those days when we were sick, if I could have called one of you that was healthy, and I said, could you come over to our house so we can catch your health? You know, wouldn't it be nice if it worked that way? But it doesn't work that way, does it? You can catch a cold or a flu, but you can't be around somebody who's healthy and catch their health, if you will. In the same way with sin, because of our fallen nature and our bent, we more easily drift toward sin. Sin is more easily spread than holiness. That's why it makes a difference who we hang around with. If you're running with the wrong crowd, that's going to affect you. It's going to affect your attitude towards God. It's going to affect your relationship with him. You're going to find yourself doing things that you shouldn't. I mean, unless you are exceptionally strong in your walk with God, like Jesus, who spent time with sinners and tax collectors and was holy, it's going to make a difference. We need to be careful who we fellowship with. We need to be a people who come before God and are honest about our sin. If we are going to be holy, there's only one way, and it is to turn to Christ and walk with him. We need to be in the word. We need to be hearing from God. We need to be around like-minded believers that can encourage us in our relationship with him. We need to be filled with his spirit and changed by the power of God. Now, why is this important? Well, Haggai will go on to say it is because an unclean person cannot please God. Wow, that's a pretty sobering statement. And we see it in verses 14 and following. Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Because of their disobedience, and in this case, it was because of their refusal to work on the temple. They were busy working on their own homes. You know, for 16 years they're doing this. Everything they touched and everything they did was defiled. They had an altar. They'd bring their offerings to the altar, and they kind of assumed that, well, we're doing what we're supposed to do. You know, isn't this enough? Isn't this okay? And yet they were living in disobedience every single day that that temple stood in ruins. And because of it, their offerings at the altar were defiled. Their prayers were unanswered. Their life was hard. The people were constantly disappointed with their harvest, with their income, with all of the things that were going on in their life. It'd be like us thinking that we could live as we please and then, but if we... Come to church for an hour, isn't that okay? And isn't that make, you know, doesn't that make everything else right? Or we can sin as we please, and if we put something in the offering, does that kind of cover that or take care of that? No, it doesn't at all. First things need to come first. Our heart needs to be right with God. And we've got to deal with whatever it is that's standing in the way of our relationship with him. So Haggai asked them to consider how things were for the past 16 years. And he goes through what was happening in their farms and their fields. He said, when anyone came to a heap of grain, you know, wanting uh, 20 measures, they found there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. 
I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. You know, what we're seeing here is the grain harvest was down 50%, cut in half. The wine production, that was down 60%. Crops were struck with blight, mildew, and hail. Sometimes the weather was just too hot. That's when the blight would come, when those strong south winds came and it was hot like a blast furnace and it would dry things up and there would be a blight on the crops. Sometimes it was too wet. You know, those years when it just rained and rained and rained and there was fungus, there was mildew, there was uh, crop damage that was there and it was disappointing. And sometimes it was just too stormy. And there was hail or there was strong wind and it would flatten the crops. And they never made the connection between their heart and the land, even though the scripture had talked about that. God had said, walk with me in obedience and I will bless you. If you turn away from me in disobedience, these are the things that I will do. Why? To get their attention. You know, I think about that with our nation. I look at what goes on around the country. I think of the extreme drought in California. I think of the flooding that's going on in Texas. I think of the storms that have hit us at different times. And we don't have a prophet to say, you know, this specifically is related to this. You know, we don't know all of that. But I look at that because of what I see in Scripture, and I wonder if it would be different. I believe it would if our hearts were right with God, if our country was right with God. Psalm 66, 18 and 19 says, If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. There's a connection between our heart and seeing answers to prayer, and sin breaks that connection. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, I don't believe that God is saying is that, that we have to be perfect and never sin, or he won't hear our prayers. Now, that's not the case. We do sin. It's what we do with that sin that is important. Do we confess it? Do we turn from it? Do we want to be right with God? We want to walk in obedience, and when we become aware of something displeasing in our life, we deal with that right away. That's what God wants. Things like disobedience, unconfessed sin, a stubborn refusal to obey, short-circuit our prayer where there is that kind of willful disobedience and desire to go our own way, well, it's no wonder our prayers are not heard. And I think about that just to give you an example of a physical thing that, that kind of illustrates the point. Now, last summer, I was trimming our bushes and hedges around the house, and you know, one of those annual jobs you need to do in the summer. And I'm out there, and I've got an electric hedge trimmer. I sometimes wish I had a cordless one, but mine has a cord attached to it. And I always have to be very careful that I don't hit the cord. Well, wouldn't you know, last summer, I'm doing this trimming, the cord slipped, zzz, I cut it with a hedge trimmer. You know, sparks, and then everything's dead. So I, I need to get a new cord, I do that, I go into the house, check the circuit breaker, make sure everything's okay, go back out, start up the hedge trimmer, nothing. No power. And I'm thinking, what happened? 
Did I just fry that head shimmer or is there something else? And I began to think, and I thought, you know what? I bet there's a ground fault on this outlet. And then I had to look for it. Is it there on the exterior outlet? Is it in the kitchen? Is it in the bathroom? Wherever they put the ground fault when they wired your home, my home, you have to know where that is. One little button, sure enough, that's all it was. One little button, I just had to push, and the power was restored. You know, here's all of this electrical power that is available to do the job, but my actions had short-circuited it and gotten in the way. And until that was dealt with, nothing was going to happen. And it's like that with sin, that if we have disobeyed God and there's something that's right here in front of us, that we need to deal with. There's no use praying about other things till we take care of first things first. What's sad is when it gets to a point where it becomes a blind spot and people don't see it even anymore. And then it takes a word from God. It takes the word of a prophet, a friend, a pastor, who says, could it be that the reason that you are not seeing God work in your life is because of some sin? Is sin short circuiting your relationship with God. Turn from it. Admit it to God. Confess it to Him. And surrender your heart to Him today. The exciting thing about this passage is that that is what God's people did in this situation. And Haggai tells us that the person who walks with God will experience His blessings both now and forevermore. When you and I walk with God, we see his blessings in this life, but even more in eternity. What changed? Why could he say from this day on things are going to be different? Well, what had changed is that for 16 years the temple lay in ruins and the people were busy doing their own work, but now the people returned to the work of God. And they made a commitment. Most of the commentators think there was probably a dedication service that took place here, a a commitment service, laying the cornerstone or some significant commitment where the people said, we are going to obey the Lord. And we know the date. And that's what's really interesting about this passage too. It was the 24th day of the ninth month. It was December 18th, 520 B.C. December 18th, 520 B.C. What's significant about that date is, well, that's the time when the winter crops would have been planted in November and December, and they grow over winter and are harvested in the spring in Israel. And so the crops are probably in the ground. By faith, it's there. And Haggai asked them to consider their ways. In verse 9, he said, Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Well, no, not so much. Put it all in the ground. We got a little bit left. Not much to live on until the harvest comes, and we're hoping it comes. Is there any produce from the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? Have they borne fruit yet? No. We're waiting. We're praying. We're hoping that it's going to be different. And what does Haggai say? He comes with this word from the Lord that says, from this day on, I will bless you. Because of your obedience, because of the step of faith that you have taken, 
You can circle this thing on the calendar. You can mark it. I want you to look back. I want you to think about what life was like before, what life, life is like after. This could be like your conversion day, the day that you made a commitment to Christ, or maybe it was a day when you made a recommitment, but you remember that day in your life. And you look back on it and you say, I was changed that day. And God, by His grace, did a new work in my life. God says from that day on, I will bless you. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel message that says that if you walk with God in obedience, you will always be rich and healthy and wise. That's not the promise being made here. There are times when God does bless and he prospers us. But God works in so many other ways. There is a blessing that comes from obedience in other ways as well. A greater joy in our life, a greater peace that comes from knowing that you are forgiven. You see spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. You see people come to know Christ. You see God using you to bless others. You sense his guidance and direction. You see answers to prayer. You experience God's provision, your daily bread for the needs that you have and many, many other ways that God works. God is good to those who walk with him by faith. Jesus said it like this in Mark 10, 29 and 30. He said, I tell you the truth that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He's covering both sides here. He's saying that if you choose to walk with me, there's nothing that you give up for me that I will not return. A hundred times as much? That's a pretty good return on investment, isn't it? I don't know too many places where you could get a deal like that. In this life, the blessing of God. And in eternity, eternal life, where God will be at work, and you will see the fruit of what he has done in your life. You know, I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful blessing that is given here. I look back on my life, and I think, you know, when I came to know Christ and began to walk in my relationship with him, and I understood his calling on my life, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to be a person that would just, Lord, if you can use me to create ripples for your kingdom, that would be great. If you could use me, whether it's through our children, our sons, and send them out to serve you, whether it's through ministry in a church like this, through discipling, through training and equipping others, or through missionaries that are sent out, whatever you can do, God, if I can make a difference for you that would create ripples in a pond. You know, I, I think that's what he wants to do through all of us. We may feel like our life is pretty ordinary. We're like that pebble that gets thrown in a pond and disappears. But if there's something that God can use from our life that touches somebody else, that touches somebody else, that touches another, how great is that? And then in eternity to be able to see what he has done will be an awesome blessing. We can trust God to provide for us. You can take this day and you can make a new commitment to him and things could be different from this day on. And what I really like here, and I'm going to close with this last part about the promise made to Zerubbabel. 
Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah at that time. He was the one who helped to lead the people back. And he's the one who said, we will obey the Lord. Well, God had a word for him that came on that very same day. There was this word for the people, but through Haggai, he had a message for Zerubbabel. And listen to what he says, beginning at verse 21. He said, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, just like he did in the Exodus. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. He was saying to Zerubbabel, the day's going to come when I will come in judgment and I will shake the nations. And not only will I shake the nations, but I am going to overthrow those nations that are opposed to me. And I will overthrow their armies that stand in defiance to my will. Chariots and drivers will be thrown into the sea. And Zerubbabel, I'm going to take you my servant, my signet ring, my chosen, all those words are terms for the Messiah. Zerubbabel, you are a sign of the Messiah who's going to come. You are like my chosen one who will come, and I will establish your kingdom forever. What God promises here to Zerubbabel is staggering. It's just like what he said to David. When David wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple, and God came to him and said, David, I haven't asked you to do this, but because it has been on your heart to do this, here's what I'm going to do for you. David, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, and your kingdom will last forever. It would be through David that the Messiah would come. Now God comes to Zerubbabel and says, Zerubbabel, because of your obedience in building the house of the Lord, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to build for you a house that will last forever. And what's really amazing about this is that in Zerubbabel, God is reversing the curse that was placed on Judah's king, Jehoiakim. Right before uh, Judah was carried away into captivity. Jehoiakim was one of the last of the kings. He was the last Davidic king. He will be taken away because of his disobedience. Zedekiah, his uncle, will be made king for a time until he rebels by going to Egypt, and he is removed. And there won't be another Davidic king. And the line of Jehoiakim he is, this curse is pronounced on him by Jeremiah that he would die childless and none of his children would sit upon the throne of David. Seventy years pass. God takes Zerubbabel, who was a grandson of Jehoiakim. He will not be a king, he is a governor. But he says, Zerubbabel, through you, the Messiah will come. And Zerubbabel is mentioned in both genealogies in Matthew and in Luke in the line of Jesus Christ. What an awesome promise. I mean, you know, here is this hope that we long for that there can be new beginnings. That if we've screwed up or messed up in another area, we've been disobedient, 
things could be different from this day on if you will make that commitment to Christ. And for some, it it is that first-time commitment. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It could be a commitment to say to him, God, I admit to you my sin. I ask you to forgive me and to come into my life. I want to follow you, and you could begin a new relationship with him. But there are also those times when we as believers make a recommitment. You could mark this day down on your calendar that this was the day you said to God, God, I'm giving you my whole heart. And maybe you're struggling in an area of your life. Maybe it's with a particular sin. Maybe it's with an addiction. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe there's an issue in your family. And, and you need to ask God, God, is there anything that's hindering my relationship with you? And deal with it. Confess your sin. Turn from it. And say, from this day on, God, I'm going to walk with you. The promise was that Zerubbabel would be his signet ring. A signet ring was a ring worn by a king or a ruler that he would use to stamp a document, you know, and he would place his seal on that, that this was authentic. God is saying, Zerubbabel, you are the sign of my promise that all this will happen. And Zerubbabel was asked to trust God at a time when he had no throne, no crown, no empire, no royal city. He had nothing but God and his word. And that was enough. And Zerubbabel obeyed God. So let me ask you, do you see God at work in your life? Are you experiencing his presence and his power? Is there anything hindering your walk with him? And I don't think you need to be overly introspective, but ask God to bring to mind, is there anything that is standing between you and me today? Is there an area of your life you need to surrender to him? And then thirdly, when you make that commitment, what will you do from this day on? What will be different in your life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God of new beginnings. And that when we have messed up, God, you are gracious and merciful to forgive us our sins. And I just pray that you would move in our midst right now and show us if there is a sin we need to deal with to confess to you, if there's an attitude that needs to change, if there's a relationship that needs to be healed where we need to go to our brother and sister or our spouse and ask for forgiveness, God, would you do a work of restoration? And then, Lord, as we commit ourselves to following your will for our life, may this be a day that we would look back on with significance and say, on May 31st, 2015, I made this commitment to you and life was different because you were Lord and I surrendered everything to you. Father, that's our heart's desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.